So it is a pleasure to, to welcome uh, Vicki Barnett here to Westminster. She'll be here the next, this week and two more, correct? Three more. Three more. That's great. Um, that, that's a good series. Um, I don't think I've ever told, told the story in this way before, but I graduated from Union Seminary in New York in 1980, and Vicki graduated in, in 81. I also, my job there, you know, to support yourself going through school was to work in the old financial aid records, the old NDSL loans and, the, you know, the government loans. So I knew every student by their name because I processed their financial aid files. But Vicki is one that I remember not by her name. I remember her by her face. And, you know, one of the names that you all will know that I remembered only by his financial aid file was Tony Tambasco, who was a <laughs> Ph.D. student there in those years. But it's nice to welcome somebody to Westminster that I actually knew uh, by face and in person. Uh, Vicki came to the Holocaust Museum in 2004, and she has been, I think, at various roles there, but part of it has been interreligious and outreach, you know, to the to the Christian community as as well as others. But but she, you can tell from just her um, biography that she really is a leading expert both on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and on the larger issue of the role that Christianity played uh, during the Holocaust, particularly those aspects of it in, in opposition to, to Hitler. Um, she's published and edited several books in that field, including uh, a new revised edition of Eberhard Betka's uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer a Biography, which is a, a classic uh, in that field. Betka was the uh, nephew to whom Bonhoeffer wrote the letters that became the letters and paper, papers from prison, and he was actually took a Bonhoeffer course from him at Union when he was there as a guest professor. Um, she is an Episcopalian layperson. Uh, she's one of she's not one of three, but we also have two of our members work at the Holocaust Museum. Anne Merrill and Amy Donovan are both in the communications department, as I, I gather. So um, without any more, I'd like to welcome Vicki Barnett, and thank you all for being here. I'll turn this off. Thank you so much. Can everyone hear me all right? Good. Oh, I'm just um, not, used, not used yet to this little gadget. Um, it really is a pleasure to be here. And when I looked at the brochure for your series as a whole, I was just really impressed uh, because, you know, the diversity of voices, the depth of the subject matter you're looking at, it just looks like a wonderful series. And I'm, I'm honored to be part of that. Um, Looking at the theme of your series, Navigating the Seas of Change, it seems to me, and I've, I've thought this for a long time, that the case study of the churches during the Nazi era, both in Germany and outside Germany, as well as what happens after 1945 in terms of Jewish-Christian dialogue um, and all the different groups that kind of emerged from this period that sought to address this history um, from a faith perspective, um, is really one of the more remarkable case studies in human history, I would say, of people of faith navigating seas of change and trying to address uh, concrete events that have really um, you know, wrenched them apart in so many ways. And so in the series, I'm here for four weeks. Um, I thought today I would start with a quick historical overview 
um, that will portray not only the record of the Catholic and Protestant churches in Nazi Germany, uh, but look at some of the international reactions as well during that era. That's a part of the history people tend not to know as well. Um, to, to give you a sense of what it was that people had to address after 1945, uh, you have a handout um, from the uh, 1947 Salisburg Conference, which was one of the earliest examples of people addressing that. But I think you can't understand the Salisburg document without understanding um, you know, what it was exactly that they were reacting to. Um, and so we begin in Nazi Germany itself. Um, as you can see from these photographs, um, you had members of the clergy in, in this photograph on the upper left-hand side, um, Roman Catholic uh, bishops who um, supported National Socialism. Uh, Germany was well over 95% either uh, Protestant or Catholic. It was a Christian nation. And during the 1930s especially, but also after the war, but I would say 33 from 30 to 39, uh, before the war began, the vast majority of Germans were on board with National Socialism. Uh, this is an aspect of the historiography that historians in the past 10 years have really been looking at in greater depth, the widespread popularity of this regime, uh, the ways in which even citizens who had criticisms of, of this or that aspect of National Socialism uh, were on board with it. Um, and so looking at the record of the Christian churches, I think trying to understand their responses and the motives for their responses is important because they, it wasn't really driven by theology. Um, you know, they, they were Germans. They you know, were living in the wake of the First World War. The Weimar years from 1918 to 1933 uh, were incredibly chaotic. You had 15 different coalition governments, none of which really functioned very well. Um, you had um, a lot of social unrest, uh, worldwide depression. Uh, Germany, in the wake of the First World War, had been saddled with reparations. Um, so there were many things that made the German population very unhappy. Um, and the Christian churches, the Protestant and Catholic churches, um, were, were driven by those motives. There was a real backlash against the Weimar Republic increasingly throughout the 1920s as it seemed more and more incapable of really pulling the nation together. Uh, there was deep anti-communism. The communist revolution had just taken place in the Soviet, in, in Russia. Um, they were looking at the, at the plight of churches in Russia. They were looking at the refugees coming over. Um, and they were very, and there were communist groups in Germany itself. I mean, in fact, in the early 1920s, uh, the communist party in Germany was staging uprisings and rallies and kind of mobilizing people in the same way that the Nazi party was. The Nazi party was founded in 1920. So, so during the 1920s, you've got radical groups on the right, you've got radical groups on the left, and the churches are sort of getting more and more worried about their institutional place in this and what this will mean for Christianity. Uh, you had deep nationalism, especially in the Protestant churches. Uh, part of that is linked to the aftermath of the First World War. Uh, but some of it goes much deeper back into the 19th century especially. Um, you know, resentment to the international community, especially in the Protestant church, um, an assumption that the church, you know, Germany was two-thirds Protestant, uh, that the church was one of the, the pillars of German society, that it was, you know, the, the pillar that upheld faith, upheld a set of values that in conjunction with the government, um, you know, this was, it, it saw itself as central to German, you know, nationhood. Um, and so you had a very deep, tradition of loyalty to governing authorities. 
And then you also had these very deep-seated prejudices against the Jews, um, in which the Nazi anti-Jewish ideology, which was racialized, um, you sort of converged with some very general stereotypes against Jews. Um, and many Christians understood their scriptures as teaching in that. This is sort of a deeply embedded prejudice, not only in Germany, as we'll see, but in this country and throughout Europe. Um, so there are a lot of different factors that shape church behavior, not just in Germany, but, but throughout Europe. Uh, part of it is you know, their understanding of Christianity, their understanding of their faith vis-a-vis -vis Judaism. Um, some of it is um, the role of church leadership. This is something that becomes very easy or very interesting during the 1930s um, in the Protestant church. Some of you may know the name of the Confessing Church. Uh, this was the church in, within Lutheranism that rose up to oppose the Nazification of the church. And so one of the things that happens after 1933 is you get a sharp division within German Protestantism between groups that are pro-Nazi, groups that are anti-Nazi, and church leaders who just don't want the church to fall apart. Um, and so you have theological, political debates. Uh, but in the course of that, church leaders begin to say, what do I do? I've got a congregation. They're sharply divided on these issues. I want to keep them get together. I want to be able to minister and preach to everyone. How do I navigate this? And so you begin to get these kinds of questions that are very concrete for clergy and, and bishops. Do they speak out no matter what the risk? Do they focus on keeping the church together? Do they make some public compromises if they, if they can, if they can justify them? Um, and, and so you see these kinds of motives beginning to shape church behavior. And so when you under, look at the motives that are, are beneath church responses, you realize the extent to which many of them, as I said, are not theologically driven. Um, some of them have to do with institutional priorities. Some of them are political. Um, and I always remind people at the museum, you're looking at a 12-year period. A lot happens in 12 years. People don't know in 1933 what's going to happen in 1945. And you know, we tend to sort of read back into history. We look at 33 and we say, how could people not know? Well, you know, they, they didn't. How, how should they have known? And so you've got people, including people in the churches, making decisions based on what they're surrounded by um, as best they can. Um, and it ends up, as we'll see, being a real disaster. But I wanted to get a little bit into this issue of Christian anti-Judaism because that's one of the things I'll be talking about in the next couple of weeks. You know, how it is after 1945 that Christians and Jews begin to talk about that relationship. Um, and the Jewish leaders, including Jules Isaac, who wrote the statement of Salisburg that you, you have before you, um, sort of looked at what had just happened and saw Christianity as you know, unredeemably anti-Semitic, that it was woven into the fabric. And Christians who began to speak to Jews about this really had to, you know, had to look at both the history and then had to look at their understanding of Scripture. So it's very complicated, and it's something that to this day isn't resolved. I mean, I'll just say that at the beginning. These are complicated issues. But one of the things that, that you know, Jews and Jewish survivors of the Holocaust were looking at were these deep, deeply historical images. On the left-hand side, a stained glass window. There are variations on this throughout Europe. Um, on the left-hand side, you have Ecclesia, the church, holding the staff of truth. And on the right-hand side, you have the figure of Synagoga. Uh, you'll see that she's blindfolded. 
um, that you know the Christian assumption was that the Jews were, were blind. They had not yet accepted Christ, that there was something inherently flawed in Judaism um, and that it needed to be led to the truth. Um, this took a specially virulent form in the late years of Dr. Martin Luther's life in which he wrote several very uh, viciously anti-Semitic diatribes against the Jews after they had refused to convert. So there was this literature um, you know, in the thing. And one of the things that happens after 1933, or actually even beforehand in terms of Nazi propaganda, is that Nazis used these images to appeal to the people of Germany. When they took uh, the picture of a cross, uh, that was something that every Christian recognized. And every Christian, most Christians sort of had this basic assumption, you know, who killed Christ? It was the Jews. And so the Nazis appealed directly to that kind of propaganda in a children's book, for example. You can see this. You know, there's, a, there's an image, a page from that book of a mother looking at the cross with her children and saying, remember, children, who it was that did this. And then you see in the Sturmer, one of the Nazi propaganda sheets, you know, every issue of the Sturmer had you know, anti-Semitic propaganda. And very often on the front page of Der Sturmer, uh, you had images of a crucifixion in which the, the Nazis were playing with this. Uh, one of the images, I looked at it last night, I couldn't find it, but I'll, but I'll try to bring it next week. In 1933, actually has a, an image of a cross. There's a stormtrooper in front of the cross with sort of a, you know, typical Germanically looking woman. Um, and, it, and, it's, and behind it, there's a big sun with a swastika. And it says, resurrection. Uh, the Jews killed Christ and he rose from the dead. They tried to kill Germany and now we too have risen. So it's a direct play on that propaganda and not incidentally, um, a direct play on sort of creating Adolf Hitler as a new kind of messianic figure. So there was a real attempt by Nazis, even in the churches, to begin to um, you know, use Christianity for their own ends, and they found people in the churches who were willing to work with them. Many Christians look back to the original Nazi party platform, 1920, at their article on what they called positive Christianity. What was positive Christianity? All, all the churches will have freedom to worship as long as they don't jeopardize the state's existence or conflict with the manners and moral sentiments of the Germanic race. So it's immediately kind of racially linked to this so-called Aryan ideal. Then it goes on, says the party upholds the view of positive Christianity. It's not going to tie itself down to Catholic or Protestant. It combats the Jewish materialistic spirit. So you see that it's also stated you know, very anti-Semitically. And then that last phrase, um, the permanent recovery of our people will only be achieved on the basis of the common good before the individual good. This was so seductive in the churches. You know, what's not to like? You, know, you put the interests of the, of, the, of the society above your own selfish interests. But for the Nazis, what that was was sort of the abrogation of individual civil rights. Um, I mean, that's, that's what they argued after 1933. You do away with civil rights because, you know, this, this is a Volksgemeinschaft, a community of the German folk, um, and that takes precedent over individual rights. And so in the Protestant church, you get this group called the Deutsche Christen, the German Christians, a pro-Nazi nationalist faction that when Adolf Hitler came to power, decided to take this and run with it. They wanted to Nazify the church. You see at one of their rallies here on the left-hand side, their flag in the background. So the German Christian flag had a cross in the middle, sort of a swastika superimposed over it. 
and then a hammer and sickle, which was supposed to appeal to the workers. So this group, um, you know, as I said, 1933, that Hitler has come to power, they immediately begin to push for the introduction of the so-called Aryan paragraph in the church. Uh, the Nazi, the first major Nazi legislation in April of 1933 banned people of Jewish descent from the civil service, so people began to lose their jobs in the bureaucracy. Uh, ministers, clergy were civil servants. Um, so the 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 Nazi regime, this is something that is often kind of tweaked in the, in the history, the Nazi regime essentially left it up to the different parts of the bureaucracy as to whether they were going to enforce this or not. The German Christians said, we want this in the church. Now, the number of German clergy who were of Jewish descent was actually very small. I think it was about 90 people. But they wanted to get rid of, you know, adult education teachers, um, religious school teachers, you know, anybody who was working for the church who couldn't prove that they were a so-called Aryan. And so the, the German Christians really begin to mobilize in the churches. There are national church elections in, in July of 1933 in which Adolf Hitler gets on the radio the night before and tells the people to vote for the German Christians. They sweep the elections. Um, and so all of a sudden after July 1933, you have these people in the bureaucracies of all the 28 regional uh, Lutheran churches um, in which they, they have varying degrees of clout. Now, this is where I always get into the weeds. I'll try not to get too far into them. Uh, in the German Lutheran, or the German Protestant Church, you had Lutheran, Reformed, and United Confessions. You had 28 regional churches. Um, depending on what the dominant confession was in the regional church, you had a different kind of polity. So Lutheran churches had a bishop uh, who had much more central authority on what was going to happen in his church than did the United Churches because they were more congregationalist. So the church governance system in parts of Germany uh, was decentralized. That's where the German Christians were able to really get in there and seize power. So that by the end of the 1930s in the, in the region of Westphalia, for example, uh, you had two separate church governments. You had one that had decided for the confessing church. You had one that had decided for the German Christians. The confessing church arose in, in a backlash against this group. Uh, they fought against the Nazification of the church. And so this is the head of the German Christians, Reich Bishop Ludwig Müller. Um, so, you know, you can see what they were fighting against. They were fighting against a, a political ideology seizing hold of German Protestantism. Um, in the Catholic Church, you have a different scene. You don't get a group like the German Christians, but you do have a leadership that begins to arrange itself with the state because it's so nervous about what's going to happen. Um, and I think one needs to understand the people at the very head of both churches looking at this new state. It moved decisively and immediately against all its political enemies. Uh, people were being beaten up on the street. There were threats of sort of a Nazification of the church. The Catholics were also looking at the German Christians. And so they decided to sign a concordat between the German government um, and the church, which the Catholic church thought would preserve their institutional control of religious schools, uh, you know, monasteries, convents, uh, they, they thought that this deal would at least keep the church free of Nazi control. Now, Adolf Hitler could care less about uh, you know, what kind of treaties he signed, but you can understand in 1933 why church leaders thought they might 
They might be able to sort of keep their churches out of Nazi control, but whatever their motives, the problem was that by signing these kinds of agreements, by having people in the Protestant church like the German Christians, um, the vast majority of Germans could look at their church leadership and say, well, you know, this is a legitimate regime. Um, you know, we, we can find our way in this. And so there's a way in which the institutions, not just the churches, this happens in universities, this happens among the medical professions. I mean, you know, one of the really shameful part of the 1930s in Germany is how many leaders of society, and some of them were internationally renowned scientists, university people, theologians, um, you know, get on board with Nazism and then actually begin to tweak their scholarship to fit uh, this new ideology. Now you have people who dissent. Um, notably Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the most famous dissenters, uh, Martin Niemöller on the far right, uh, this gentleman here. So they emerge very quickly as leaders of this confessing church in the Protestant church, which opposes the German Christians, opposes the Nazification of the church, and throughout the 1930s uh, begins to fight a battle within the Protestant church to keep it from going too far uh, toward national socialism. As I said, you've got all these neutral figures in the middle of the church who are just trying to keep everything together. They view the confessing church and the German Christians as two problematic groups that are equally extreme. Um, so you, you never, the church never falls apart, but it, and it never becomes completely Nazified, but it never becomes the church that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wanted it to be. Um, so, you know, German Protestants, I mean, this is kind of, it's a very diverse group. You also have throughout the per period people in the Catholic Church. Um, this is, let me find, Bernard Lichtenberg. Um, a Catholic priest in Berlin who, after November 1938, began to pray publicly on behalf of the persecuted Jews. He was arrested by the Gestapo and died en route to Dachau. Um, Clemens Grafen Gallen, the Catholic Bishop of Münster, uh, who, after the so-called euthanasia proceedings in 1940, uh, began to preach publicly condemning the murders of institutionalized patients, um, he, didn't, he was prominent enough that he actually was not imprisoned. He, and in fact, it caused such an international uproar that the Nazis um, officially at least stopped the euthanasia program. We know that behind the scenes they continued it. Uh, but it showed the force that someone, a leader of the church speaking out, uh, could have. Uh, Margareta Sommer is someone that many people don't know about, but you had many women like this, both in the Protestant and Catholic churches, who worked in social in areas of social welfare, uh, who began to hide Jews, rescue them, help them get out, um, and and there, there, so there's a grassroots movement of people in both churches who begin to really try to do something to rescue and and help Jews. Um, internationally, this begins after 1939. This begins to happen as well. Uh, three striking examples. Uh, one is the village of Les Chambon. I, have people heard of that village? It's a Huguenot village close to the Swiss border in France uh, that managed to rescue about 5,000 children by hiding them. And this is a case in which the entire community sort of came together to do this, which is very striking. Um, and it was led by their pastor, Andre Trochme. Um, a man actually who also studied at Union Seminary during the 1920s uh, went back, was very ecumenically active, a pacifist, um, and ended up getting a, this church in La Chambon. And when the Nazis occupied, occupied France, then began to do what he could to help Jews. 
in the Catholic Church, you have leaders such as Monsignor Angelo Rota of Budapest, who wrote hundreds of visas and, and false baptismal certificates to help Jews in Budapest get out. Um, and then you had a number of convents and monasteries throughout Europe that begin to take in children um, and, and hide them among the, the children that they were working with. So you do, you know, you have this, this network, this complex network of different kinds of reactions to what's happening. Now let me talk a little bit about the churches in this country because this is a fascinating story and it's very relevant to what we'll be talking about in the coming years. Um, you have in this country during the 1920s actually an interfaith movement that gets started. Christians and Jews, Catholics, Protestants and Jews. Uh, the National Conference of Christians and Jews had been founded in 1928 so it was just beginning to expand as this began to unfold in Nazi Germany. And so you had working relationships in our country between Jewish leaders, Protestant and Catholic leaders that led during the 19, in the early years of Nazism to some demonstrations, to declarations of solidarity, to real attempts to do something. This picture here shows uh, Rabbi Stephen Wise, who was one of the most prominent uh, Jewish figures during this period, and Bishop John Manning, who was the Episcopal Bishop of New York City and who was very outspoken on this issue. Uh, you have rallies, this one in Madison Square Garden, or outside Madison Square Garden, protesting what's being done to the Jews in Germany. Um, and especially after Kristallnacht, you actually have a big outburst of outrage uh, by both Catholics and Protestants. And here's some of the uh, the things that, that happened. Uh, we had a conference on this several years ago at the museum and to study American responses. And so this came out of <clears throat> this conference. Uh, but you also have pulpit exchanges where rabbis are invited to speak to the local pulpit about their concerns. So you really have an attempt in this country to bridge the gap in very practical terms and internationally. There are some very striking responses, uh, notably the one by William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who just gives a remarkable speech in March of, uh, in December of 1943, um, or no, it's actually March 1943. I don't know why I've got the date there, um, about you know condemning what is now happening in, in, in war-torn Europe and the actual genocide of the Jews and calling upon the British government to open its doors and accept uh, more refugees. This is a, uh, this is a, a caricature in De Sturmer, uh that follows that. So you can see what De Sturmer did with this kind of thing, sort of charging you know, international Christian leaders as being in cahoots uh, with, with Jewish leaders. You also had um, strong anti-Semitism in the United States. Uh, these are pictures all from the United States. Um, this is uh, Father Charles Coughlin, the uh, Catholic radio preacher who had millions of radio listeners during the 1930s, uh, very outspoken in favor of fascism and, and you know, very strongly anti-Semitic. Um, and you had the German-American Bund, which actually was very pro-Nazi. These are rallies of the Bund in this country. And you had the Klan. Uh, which was very anti-Semitic, also very anti-Catholic. So during the 1930s in this country, you also have a rise in this kind of activity um, that you know, seems to be taking some of its signals um, from what's happening in Germany. And after 1939, across Europe, um, you also have a number of governments that begin to link themselves to Germany. Um, collaborationists in the governments. And in all of these places, you begin to see sort of right-wing uh, movements that affiliate themselves in some cases with the churches. 
Um, in Slovakia, um, Father Joseph Tiso, a Catholic priest, actually became president of Slovakia, which was a collaborationist uh, government. And in Romania, the Iron Guard, which had been founded in the 1920s, uh, its other name was the, um, the Guard of the Archangel Michael, Archangel Michael. Um, Codriano, who was the founder of the Iron Guard, was not a priest, but it drew a lot of support from the, excuse me, the Romanian Orthodox Church. And even within the Catholic sphere, you had, had priests such as Umberto Benigni, uh, who was pro-fascist, anti-modernist, anti-Semitic. Uh, now, it must be said that figures like this in the Catholic Church, they weren't leaders, but they're out there spreading propaganda, and they have their followers. So you have this incredibly messy scene across Europe that just builds and builds until 1945 of people who somehow identify themselves on the Christian spectrum um, and are, are, you know, in, in line with the Nazi anti-Semitic teachings. And this in part is what Jews after 1945 were reacting to. If you had Jewish survivors from Poland, from Romania, from Hungary, um, you know, they, they were looking at what their local clergy had done or what their Christian neighbors had done. And in all too many cases, they were looking at, at you know, real complicity and persecution. And so the challenges that were there immediately in the aftermath of the Holocaust uh, were in part historical. I mean, they were looking at the role of different clergy. They looked at groups like the German Christians. They looked at some of the moderate you know, Lutheran bishops of Germany who maybe hadn't been members of the Nazi party, but they hadn't done anything to speak out and they had in fact prevented the church from really uh, becoming more, more helpful or more supportive of the Jews. So you see the, you know, the legitimization of the Nazi state, the record of the churches, the involvement of practicing Christians in the genocide. I mean, this was a genocide ultimately that was perpetrated by thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, soldiers, um, local villagers, and you know, many of these people were baptized Christians. So it's a question both to the leadership, um, you know, why didn't the leadership say to soldiers, if you're out there on the front, as a Christian, you don't do this, or why didn't it come from underneath where you have, and you do have you know, individual Christians who do make that choice, but not enough of them, obviously. Um, and so, you know, you have this moment in which Christians and Jews come together in 19, after 1945, and how do you begin to speak to each other? Um, one of the things, several themes that emerged earlier was, you know, the recognition that this was a genocide that had really been, that had been perpetrated against the Jews, that the Nazis killed many people. Uh, they were vicious and brutal in terms of their treatment of occupied populations throughout Europe. But there was an intent there to really eradicate Jews from the face of the earth. Um, and the, the recognition of that fact was very important to the Jewish community. Um, and then the real stickler, and this is what we'll talk about, especially next week, you know, Jewish um, members in the new Jewish-Christian relationship who said, you know, what do you do about the, the Gospel of John? You know, the anti-Jewish text in that Gospel. What do you do about the notion of supersessionism? Uh, what do you, you know, there are all these theological points that then got put on the table. Some of them, you know, articulated in the Salisburg document. And then the larger ethical and theological questions that I think really strike anyone, whether you're a member of a faith group or not. You know, how do you deal after a genocide with, you know, the responsibility of individual leaders and citizens and this notion of some sort of collective guilt? 
You know, what, what do you, how do you describe evil? <laughs> how do you understand evil um, in the aftermath of something like this? You know, the theodicy question, you know, where was God? Um, can we still believe in the God we used to believe in in the wake of something like this? If you believe in an um, you know, an omnipotent, you know, beneficial God, you know, how does that reconcile with what we see in the Holocaust? Um, the legacy for how we address interreligious issues, this is something I want to talk about in the coming weeks. I think that the case study after 1945 of how Jews and Christians begin to address these issues is really a wonderful case study for inter, any interreligious dialogue uh, because it shows the difficulty, the tensions, um, and the, the you know, immense integrity and decency of many of the people who got involved in this. Um, their courage in getting involved in this. Um, so it's, there's, there's something here that I think we can learn for. And then finally, not to forget the phenomenon of rescue and resistance. How do we understand someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? How do we look at these, these rescuers, these resistors? You know, what do they tell us about how people of faith um, can react to something like this that's going on? Um, and that brings us to the Salisburg meeting in 1947. Now, I, I'm going to sort of end here today, but I want to talk about it, and then next week we'll really build on this. So 1947 is, is an interesting moment. The International Conference of Christians and Jews uh, had just been founded. This is the group that gathered at Salisburg. I mentioned the National Conference of Christians and Jews in this country. It was led by a man named Everett Clinchy, um, a Presbyterian minister, um, who had built this incredible interfaith work in the United States throughout the 1930s, largely around social issues and largely, it was largely framed as Catholics, Protestants, and Jews coming together to fight prejudice. That was, that was their common ground. Uh, he didn't get into theological issues because it would be difficult to do that and work with the Catholic Church, work with some of the, in the Jewish community. So he said, there's one thing that we can all agree on. We're Americans. We believe in American democracy. And we realize that prejudice, any kind of prejudice, anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism, racism, divides us, erodes our social fabric. And that was, that was what they were doing in the 1930s. The NCCJ went from a, a staff of two people in 1933 to a national staff of over 400 people by the end of World War II. They did a number of things. You know, they, National Brotherhood Week, for those of you old enough to remember the Tom Lehrer song, founded by the NCCJ. They had National Brotherhood events in, in the White House. Uh, they, they really did a lot across the country. They sent tours across the country, what they call trio tours, a rabbi, a priest, a pastor, uh, to model interreligious dialogue. And they went to almost all the states to do this. So they really kind of were building something from the ground up. And after 1945, Everett Clinch, he went to Europe and said, we'll do this in post-war Europe. We're going to show Jews and Christians how to live together in Europe. Um, and this is where Clinchy is sometimes kind of naive. He goes over there, I think, not realizing the tremendous wrenching emotional impact that this event has just had. Um, but he organizes this meeting in Salisburg. And if you were to look at the whole record of the meeting of Salisburg, they have workshops about the kinds of things they want to do. But what happens at Salisburg is they invite Christian and Jewish leaders from across Europe. Many of the Jewish leaders have just lost family members in the Holocaust. Um, and one of them is a French historian named Jules Isaac. Uh, Jules Isaac had already started writing um, his book, 
Jesus in Israel in the early 1940s. Uh, he was really interested in his Christian-Jewish relationship. Um, Isaac and his family got to La Chambon. Um, they then, you know, they were staying sort of in that region of France. Uh, one day, Jules Isaac goes out for a walk and comes back, and his wife, daughter, son-in-law, and son have been arrested by the Gestapo. Um, his son managed to get away, but he, his wife, uh, daughter, and son-in-law were deported to Auschwitz where they were murdered. So Isaac, in coming to the ICCJ, uh, doesn't want to just sort of talk in general about how to fight prejudice. Isaac is the one who says, you know, I think theologically you Christians are inherently anti-Semitic, and unless you deal with this, there's no conversation. And that's where the 10 points of Salisburg come from. Uh, they actually come from his 18 points uh, in his book, Jesus in Israel, which actually came out after uh, the war. But when you begin to look at you know, what he outlines here, and of course the foreword, I mean the, the introduction where he says, you know, he, we have recently witnessed an outburst of anti-Semitism that has led to the persecution extermination of millions <laughs> of Jews. And that second paragraph, the Christian churches have always affirmed the unchristian character of anti-Semitism, but that didn't stop many Christians from believing in that. Um, and then you know, he goes on to, to you know, un articulate that. And then you know, these 10 points of Salisburg, which are not historical. You know, he's not talking about the complicity of the Christian churches. He's actually getting into the, the, the theology and saying to the Christians in Salisburg, many of whom uh, were, were you know, theologians or pastors or church leaders, says, so if Christians and Jews want to speak to one another, uh, these, are, these are the essential points, that one God speaks to us through both testaments, that Jesus was Jewish, and he was Jewish until the end of his life, that his followers were Jewish, um, that we need to understand you know, Christianity is emerging from that history, but at the time of Jesus' life, you know, this is a Jewish teacher. Um, and then he says, avoid distorting or misrepresenting post-biblical Judaism. Avoid using the word Jews in terms of their being the enemies of Jesus during his lifetime. Uh, avoid presenting the passion in such a way that you blame the Jews for the death of Christ. Avoid referring to the scriptural curses, the one that we hear you know, every Good Friday, his blood be upon us and our children. Avoid promoting the superstitious notion that the Jewish people are accursed or that they're destined for suffering. This was something that really came out during the Holocaust. You would have Christian leaders saying, well, yes, it's terrible what's happening, but, you know, they're, they're accursed people. This is what happens. Um, and then, you know, the final one avoids speaking of the Jews as if the first members of the church were not Jewish. So it's... You know, it's a clear theological challenge. And what comes out of that are decades upon decades that are continuing today of Jews and Christians in theological dialogue with one another about you know, how we understand each other. Part of that has been learning more about Judaism and all of its richness. Part of that has been a reflection on Christian theology, how we understand our Christian faith, how we understand that through our liturgies, through our hymns, through our prayers. And you, know, you can see what a challenge this is uh, because, you know, Christians, I mean, we have, there, there are certain things in our faith and our teaching that really are inherently, you know, they, they go beyond Judaism, beginning with Jesus uh, understood as the Messiah and you know, his act of atonement on the cross, um, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the ways in which we interpret 
Jesus' Messiahship as the fulfillment of the scriptures in the Hebrew Bible. So there's, there's a rich theological debate here that is not at all simple and to this day is not completely resolved. I mean, you, I've, I've attended a number of workshops where you have Jews and Christians speaking together and, you know, the Christians, you know, I mean, this, you, these are very concrete things for us to wrestle with, which in turn, however, are, I, I found this an immense, immensely rich discussion because it, it compels the Christians who get involved in it to look at their faith up close, to sort of say, well, what do I believe? How do I understand this? Um, you know, what could this mean? Um, and so, you know, out of this comes Vatican II. I mean, Jules Isaac's influence on Vatican II was profound. Um, it comes a number of rich theological discussions, um, and that's what we'll get into in the next next few weeks. But, you know, to understand the urgency of this in the Jewish community, one needs to understand both what happened in the Holocaust and, and how people reacted to that in the immediate aftermath. The other complicated thing, and I'll just close there, is that, of course, Christianity is a very big tent. <laughs> Christians don't all think alike. Um, I mean, it's, it's been interesting in, in, you know, when I've gone sometimes to Jewish-Christian dialogue groups and they sort of think that, you know, I can speak for all Christians. And I said, you know, wait, no. You know, I mean, you've got Catholics, Protestants. Within the Protestants, you've got fundamentalists, evangelicals, mainline Protestants, people all points in between. You have the Orthodox churches. And so one of the interesting things that has happened in the decades since the Holocaust is you do have statements from all these different churches that kind of focus on the thing that is most challenging to them. Um, in some groups, it's the issue of evangelization. You know, how can we not proselytize our faith you know, among the Jews? I mean, it's a serious question for many people. Um, you know, for some mainline Protestants, that's not the issue. The issue lies somewhere else. Um, and so you know, this is an immensely complicated history, uh, but I think a really fascinating one. And one of the things that I do, I, I work a lot with groups of all faiths at the museum. Um, and I've taken a number of Muslim groups through and sort of talking about how it is both that a faith wrestles with ideological tensions within its, its body, which is what happens during the 1930s. I mean, you've got these very stark ideological tensions within the Protestant church in Germany. Um, and then how religious leaders address that both institutionally and theologically. Um, so there's a lot to talk about here, and I'll stop now so that we have some time for questions. Thank you. I don't know. I mean, that, it's an interesting question. I've gotten that before. In the immediate aftermath in Germany, people kind of flock back to the churches. Um, I mean, during the 1950s, you know, especially. I mean, there there is this um, this turn back, and I think part of it is soul searching. Um, some of it is just searching for some kind of ground um, in the wake of National Socialism. Um, and the secularization that we see in Europe, I, I suspect, may come through other other things. I mean, sort of the a number of social and political developments over the decades since then. But in the 50s and 60s, at least, and into the 70s, I mean, you have high membership in the German churches. Now, Germany, of course, was divided. Um, in the G German Democratic Republic, East Germany, uh, the story is somewhat different because in, in the Soviet 
you know, there, there was an attempt to eradicate uh, Christianity as, you know, or to see it as, as a form of faith that was going to die out. Um, and one of the effects of that in East Germany was that you really did get a very tiny uh, group of people who remained active members of, of the church. Um, interestingly enough, led by a bishop who had studied under Dietrich Bonhoeffer in, in Finkenwaldus. So there's, there's a story there. Um, but I think the secularization doesn't necessarily come from this, this point. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank Yeah, Niemöller is a fascinating figure. My, my first book was a collection of oral histories that I conducted with people who had been in the Confessing Church, and I was lucky enough to interview Niemöller um, I, several weeks before his 90th birthday, but he was sharp as a tack. And Niemöller, um, as you said, 1933, he was, he was in favor of the, the rise of the Nazis. Uh, he had been a World War I submarine boat commander. He was strongly nationalistic. Um, and then turned against them um, because of what was happening in the churches and became a real lightning rod for Hitler. Um, you know, he, was, he was actually a tried in a court and, and acquitted. He was tried for treason and acquitted because of his war record in the First World War. And Hitler immediately personally ordered his rearrest because he just wanted him out of the public sphere. Um, so, you know, he's, but people like that are, are really fascinating. It's a wonderful story. Other questions or comments? Yes. Uh, we've seen a great deal of rising militarization of the Muslim. Yeah. Community. Yeah. Agro, the labor of the Yeah. 
addressing the in-year number of lectures, um, what is happening in response to this kind of tokenization yeah. and separation uh, between both the Christian church, the Jewish <coughs> Christian, yeah. and the Muslim communities of the country? Yeah. And what voice is polluting to address that really at the time? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the point is that we're all looking back in history. Right. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, yes, I mean, I can say briefly, but I do want to sort of get into that as we look at the interreligious. Well, but, but briefly, I mean, I think that this is something that didn't happen in 1933 in Germany, that you didn't have German Christian leaders openly, you know, standing with, with members of the Jewish community. Whereas in this country, you really have, I mean, there has been some remarkable solidarity um, between especially Jewish and Muslim organizations. I mean, there's an organization called Shoulder to Shoulder um, that in which Jewish leaders say that if there's an act of Muslim, anti-Muslim violence, that they will, you know, they will step in and stand with them. Um, and you have equal solidarity, um, you know, shown by the Muslim co community uh, with regard to the vandalization of cemeteries, synagogues. And so I think, you know, there there is a network in existence in this country that, that has... That, and, and it was in existence before then, but what's nice is to see people stepping up when, when the actual violence hits. I mean, I have a, an advisory committee at the museum for my work, and we meet you know, once a year. Um, and it's comprised of scholars and leaders who have been you know, in the field. Uh, but when I first started, it was all Christian because it was people who looked at the history of the Christian churches. I said at some point, you know, we really do need Jewish scholars and leaders in this. And we now have two Muslim members of the committee, um, both of whom are really wonderful. So, yeah. Other questions? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing is, you know, the building of relationships, interreligious relationships with, and that happens locally. You know, I mean, it's it's local clergy reaching out to, you know, their, their Jewish um, colleagues um, so that there's there's a community there that's aware and alert um, and, and showing up. I mean, there's a tremendous symbolic value when something happens um for the Jewish community when they see people coming from the entire community out to help clean it up, to stand with them. Um, I mean, that I think that's a starting point. Now, things that go beyond that in terms of, you know, speaking to the local police department, I mean, I think everyone is trying to figure out right now um, what, what, you know, what the best responses are, and especially in terms of preventing um, something really awful from happening. But it's, I think it's important that you know, there's a profile there of, of you know faith communities and faith leaders uh, who you know are, are speaking out. Other questions or yes? I guess this might also maybe a Yes, I, I'm <laughs> going to spend some time on that because it's, it's a biggie. I mean, it, it's a biggie theologically, politically, um, and it's one of those interesting moments in which if you look at the different parts of the Christian church 
and there are different connections to that part of the world, um, largely through the you know, history of the missions in that part of the world. Um, you know, that really shapes how different Christian churches respond uh, to Israel and how they understand it theologically. Uh, but it's, it's an ongoing element in Jewish-Christian dialogue, both Catholic and Protestant. Yeah, I mean, as a historian, <laughs> everyone everyone should take lots of history. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I agree, it really is a problem. Um, I mean, it's one of the things that I've really, um, that makes me proud to work at the Holocaust Museum is, you know, we get about 1.7 million visitors a year. Um, and, and many of them, I mean, it's the general, general public who's coming to Washington to see all the museums. So they come to our museum. And they may come in really not knowing much at all about this history. They, they know the name of Hitler and they know that the Nazis were bad and that's kind of the sum of it. Um, and so the construction of historical exhibits to try to pull people in and, and let them know not just what happened but try at different points to make them kind of connect with that history um, I think is, I mean, it's something that people in the museum world think a lot about because that's what they do. Um, and so, you know, when you put together an exhibition to try to, um, you know, do it in a way that's not completely over the heads of school children and people who go through, but, you know, manages to, you know, re make, help them realize the impact of something like this. I mean, that's kind of what we're all about. Um, and so we have the exhibitions, but we also have a lot of programs and we have debriefings. I mean, a lot of times when groups come through the museum, they can ask someone to talk to them about some aspect of the history. And so we, we have a lot of different ways, also our website, um, in which we really try to engage the public to, to help teach them about it. Uh, but I, I see that as really important, especially as you said, because many school systems, you know, you don't need a course in history or whatever you get um, isn't really going to touch on many things. So. Yes. Another comment, just maybe something you'll add to. Uh -huh. Separate out this issue of villainizing the Jews. Yeah.
of those others who are part of our global neighbors. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know to what degree that is being looked at and really exposed. Uh -huh. um, desperate people will respond as did the Germans. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I'll add that, you know, Hitler didn't Hitler didn't invent the nationalism or the xenophobia or the anti Semitism. Now I mean that he he was he spoke to it. He harnessed it. Um but you know one of the things and, and that's one of the things I think that makes the Holocaust different perhaps from other genocides is even after nineteen thirty nine when the German army invades, you know, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, um, every country they go into, you've got a population that is now under German occupation. They hate the Nazis, they you know are fighting back against them, but they're willing to turn against their Jews. Um, and that's that's one of the things we'll sort of get into, but it's one of the elements that you know Jules Isaac uh, certainly had in mind um, in 1947 when he wrote the Salisbury document. I see that you have like three minutes. I, I was told I needed to stop at a quarter to eleven, but I, <laughs> I just, so I'm, but it's, I really appreciate all your questions and your listening. So. Thank you, thank you, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. <laughs>